658 in your pew Bible. 1658. Last book of the Bible, Revelation, chapter 3, reading verses 7 through 13. Hear now the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. The churches. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, today we come to the church in Philadelphia. Letter to the church in Philadelphia, in which Christ commends, praises the faithful missionary church. He praises, he commends the faithful missionary church. But we're continuing, as you know, in our series in the book of Revelation starting in chapter 1, in which we saw the glorious Messiah, the glorious Christ, reigning over the seven churches. And then each church is considered and either commended or condemned. Even the ones that are condemned, of course, are first commended, interestingly. So the Lord Jesus does pray certain things, but then he turns his attention on five of those seven and says, but you've got a problem here. But two of these... Two of these churches, including the one we're dealing with today, as well as Smyrna, Smyrna, of course, earlier, chapter 2, and now Philadelphia, two of them he has only praise, interestingly. And so is true of Philadelphia. Now, as we look at the name or the names of this city, we first of all would note that Attalus, that's A-T-T-A-L-U-S, Attalus II, who reigned from 159 to 138 B.C., Attalus II owed great loyalty to Eumenes, thereby earning the honor of being called brother-lover. And that, of course, is what Philadelphia means. It comes from two words, phileo, which means to love, and Adelphos, which means brother. 
And so we see here from the second century BC this notion of brother lover, brotherly love. It twice changed its name. At one point it was called Neo Caesarea, New Caesar, New Caesar, if you will. Tiberius, the emperor, the Caesar, had displayed great benevolence toward the city after an earthquake. Um, and uh, uh, Germanicus, who was Tiberius's agent in Philadelphia, was next in line to become emperor, and therefore he was called the New Caesar. And so the city was called Neo Caesarea. Interestingly, Germanicus was murdered. But in any case, he was the new Caesar. And then it was called Flavius, F-L-A-V-I-U-S, Flavius. During the reign of Vespasian, 50 years later, Philadelphia received permission to change its name in honor of the first of the Flavian line of emperors. And the city undoubtedly celebrated this event with great fanfare, great rejoicing, as well as proclamation of the deity of Vespasian. So Neo-Caesarea, Flavius, but also Philadelphia. And this city, Philadelphia, was a missionary city. Rather than being a military city, as we've seen with regard to several of these others, rather than being a military city, its purpose was more that of propagating the culture, of spreading the culture, spreading the, the, um, uh, the perspective, spreading the ideas of the Greco-Roman world. It was consolidating, it was regulating education in the central regions of Asia Minor, this part of what today we would call the country of Turkey. It was a center of Greek Asiatic civilization. Greek Asiatic civilization. It was a means of spreading of Greek language and manners. Greek, of course, one of the classical languages. And so this was a key city in terms of spreading Greek language and manners. And of course, not just the language and manners, but the ideas of the Greco world. It was rather successful in its endeavors. The city was located on an important route to the interior. And so it was a key place of commerce, transportation, communication. The religion, though still breathing the spirit of local pagan religion, the local pagan deities, was subjected to Greek influence. And it was in that regard, then, that Philadelphia was spreading what it regarded, of course, as the good news. Of course, we know it was bad news, actually. It was wrong, but nevertheless, it was spreading that message. It was itself a missionary city, which, by the way, is going to be interesting because the church here in Philadelphia is going to be commended as being a missionary church. It was also a place that was full of earthquakes. There was great devastation in AD 17. So at least, depending on how you date Revelation, at least half a century, maybe three quarters of a century uh, uh, after that earthquake is when this book of Revelation is written. Depends on how you date it. 
but not a whole century to be sure, however you date it. So in fairly recent memory, a great devastation in AD 17. And Twelve cities of the Lydian Valley were destroyed, including Sardis, and that we considered last time, and Philadelphia. Sardis suffered the most, but Philadelphia continued to feel the after. If you've ever been in an event like that, like an earthquake, I haven't, but I know of folks who have. It's not a fun thing to go through, and especially the aftershocks, because you never know, as you're feeling the aftershocks, is this going to be even bigger, perhaps? Many people, as, as late as uh, as late as A.D. 20, Philadelphia was still subject to panic because of the after-effects of the earthquake. Many people lived outside the city in huts and booths. And the foolhardy, who went back into the city, used various devices to shore up the walls to make sure that those walls would not collapse if another big one hit. Well, that is the background then. We look as an introduction to the text here. As we see here in verse 7, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, this is the standard formula. This is now the sixth time that we've seen the standard formula to the angel, to the messenger, whether an individual, a particular person, or as I've suggested, maybe it's all the presbyters together. But however it is, it is to those who are bringing the message to the churches, and so to those officers responsible for giving the message to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Again, could be a congregation, could be a presbytery, but however we construe of the church in Philadelphia, that's to whom this message particularly is going. Write it down. Write down this message, Jesus says. He's saying that so that there can be no question about what the message is. So notice how he says this, right? These things says he who is, and now we have several things listed. First of all, the one who is holy. He who is holy. Now, my friends, holiness is an absolutely essential attribute or characteristic of the Godhood. It is absolutely necessary for God to be holy. And that means, of course, it means to be separate Means to first of all, it means to be separate. That's what it means to be holy. So, for example, uh, you might have you might have your everyday dishes, and then you have the dishes when the queen shows up for lunch, so to speak. Probably the queen's not going to show up, but you get the point. The special the special occasions that you save, you save those particular dishes. They are set apart, or uh, a wedding dress, for example, is set apart for a particular occasion, okay? And so that's what holiness means. So God is set apart from us. He is absolutely holy because of the fact that he is totally different from us. He is totally other than we are. He is, totally, he is pure spirit. He is totally transcendent. He's totally and completely beyond us. And so Jesus himself is claiming basically to be God here. He's saying these things says he who is holy. And of course Christ's holiness not only is in terms of his being God, his deity, but Christ's holiness is specifically in contrast then 
to the wickedness of Satan and those of his synagogue. You see there, verse 9, a reference to the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie, and so forth. In contrast to Satan, in contrast to those of the synagogue of Satan, Jesus is the one who is totally and absolutely holy. He is also the one who is true. This is a reference to the absolute truthfulness of Jesus. He is holy and true. Now, if you look in Revelation 6, verse 10, you see the same two attributes put together. And they, that is to say, the souls of the martyrs, the souls of those who have been slain for the word of God, for the testimony which they held, they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until thou judgest and avengest our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Same, same phrase, holy and true. Uh, we also see that Jesus is the one who is faithful and true. Look at chapter 3 and verse 14. So the next letter, the letter to the Laodiceans, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness. The beginning of the creation of God. And again, if you look back in Revelation 19 and verse 11, Revelation 19 and verse 11, John says, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. And so we see here then the, a reference to the absolute truthfulness of Jesus. He never lies, never tells a lie, obviously. He is truth itself. He is truth personified. But in conjunction with that, he is also the Holy One, and he's also the faithful one. So his truth is not merely an abstraction. His truth is that he will act in accordance with that faithfulness. And so he, he remains true. It's not just in terms of the ideas. It's in terms of the actions. He who is holy. He who is true. And then notice something. He who has the key of David. He who has the key of David. What an interesting phrase. He who opens, no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. But he who has the key of David. Now we read earlier in the service from Isaiah 22. And there you find Shebna, who is essentially the prime minister of King Hezekiah. So remember you, you had the division of the tribes. You had the the you had the ten northern tribes, at this time called the nation of Israel. Then you had the southern tribes, Judah, Benjamin, the Levites. And that was called the nation of Judah. Okay, So you have Israel, you have Judah towards the south, where Jerusalem is. So King Hezekiah was king of Judah. and So that was, that was the one that remained faithful longer to, to God. And King Hezekiah's prime minister then, we would say, prime minister was Shebna. So you had the king, then you had his, his right-hand man, Shebna. And Shebna was taken to task. He had made for himself a very ornate sepulcher, or burial place, for which he was condemned. And it appears from this as well that he was part of a pro-Egypt party a pro-Egypt party which recommended alliance 
with Egypt. Now, you remember, the children of Israel were to remain separate from all the other nations. They were not to, to give themselves over to the nations of the world. They were to remain a separate nation, a separate people. They were to trust in the one who is the king of kings and lord of lords, the one who rules over all, the one who is truly sovereign, namely Yahweh or Jehovah. They were to trust in him and not in earthly princes. But there was a party then within, a group within uh, there, which was advocating alliance with Egypt. If you look at Isaiah chapter 30, for example, Isaiah chapter 30, starting in verse 1, Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel but not of me, and who devise plans but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who walk to go down to Egypt and have not asked my advice to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, the strength of Pharaoh shall be your shame, and trust in the shadow of Egypt shall be your humiliation. For his princes were at Zoan, his ambassadors came to Hanes. They were all ashamed of a people who could not benefit them, or be help or benefit, but a shame, and also a reproach. If you look at chapter 31 of Isaiah, starting in verse 1, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, and rely on horses, who trust in chariots, because they are many, and in horsemen, because they are very strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord. Yet he also is wise, and will bring disaster, and will not retract his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers and against the help of those who work iniquity. Now the Egyptians are men and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, both he who helps will fall, and he who is helped will fall down. They all will perish together. And chapter 36, chapter 36 of Isaiah Verses 6 and following. Look, God says, look, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed, Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? and so forth. Okay? So, what we find here then in, in Isaiah is that there was this pro-Egypt party which advocated alliance with Egypt. And Eliakim then, so that was Shebna's view, but Eliakim stood in contrast to this worldly-mindedness, and he was the one who replaced Shebna. We read in Isaiah 22 that he would have the key of the house of David on his shoulder. He would have the key of the house of David on his shoulder. Key, of course, a key points to authority. You all know the joke about how if, you, if you're, a, if you're a, a young executive, a young man, and you get the key to the men's restroom, you've arrived, you see. You have authority now. And so key then, the key points to authority. The house of David, of course, the great king of Israel. 
And the key of authority then of the house of David was to be on his shoulder, showing that he was the one that would be bearing that burden. He was to be a firm fixture. He was to be, Eliakim was to be a firm fixture. Just like a peg on which all these people would depend. You have a peg in the wall, you, you hang up your coat on it or whatever. He was to be like a peg on which all these people would depend. But there would come a time, there would come a time when even this peg would be cut off. But of course there was one coming who is the true son of David. We have one coming who, is, who, who would be sure, who would be sturdy, who would be steady, and who would persevere, and who has the key of David by which he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. <coughs> by the way, that notion of a key and of opening is found, of course, in various places in Scripture, including perhaps most famously Matthew chapter 16, verse 19. Matthew 16, verse 19. Matthew 16, 19, where Jesus says to Peter, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever you shall bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatsoever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And so the idea then of a key being able to open and being able to close, being able to, to set free and being able to bind those who reject that message. So, with that as an introduction to the text then, let's look today at the blessing. Let's look today at the blessing that Jesus promises here. He says, that is to say, this one who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, he says in verse 8, I know your deeds. I know your deeds. Uh, what a comfort Christ's knowledge can be, especially when we're doing what's right. Now, children, I'm sure that when you are doing what's wrong, you don't want your mother to know it, right? I'm sure that is the case. However, when you're doing what's right, well, you want everyone to know it, don't you? Well, what a comfort Christ's knowledge then can be, especially when we're doing what's right. The deeds here, it's a general reference, but it's going to be fleshed out by the description that follows. I know your deeds. But also, notice in verse 8 again, the, the, the open door that he speaks about. See, I have, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. I have set before you an open door, and no one, no one can shut it. In Colossians 4, we read, meanwhile, verse 3, Meanwhile, praying also for us, that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains. And 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 12. 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 12. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, 
and a door was opened to me by the Lord. And so it's a wonderful opportunity. This open door is a wonderful opportunity to preach the gospel. But that open door, the blessing of this, is not simply the opportunity, but rather it is also God's grace that creates willing hearts. It is God's grace that opens the door of the heart, not just giving the opportunity to meet people, but there's also the open door, the as the being opened, as it were, the heart that is being opened. And so this is what is being referred to here. So that's the blessing itself. Now notice the causes of this, though. Did you notice what it says here? For you have a little strength. Hmm. You have a little power. Now, isn't that kind of curious? When you think, when you think that if you're if you're going to accomplish some great and mighty deed, you want a lot of power. You want a lot of authority. You want a lot of strength. And yet, here Christ is saying, it is precisely, you see, it is precisely because you have only a little strength that I'm going to do this through you. The two churches that were solely commended, both of them, Smyrna and Philadelphia, were noted for their smallness. Isn't that interesting? So we can, you know, we can apply that, can't we? Just because something is big doesn't mean it's effective in the final analysis. Just because it's a big megachurch, we heard the prayer request today with regard to the false prophets in the church. There are a lot of churches, I'm not saying every church that's big is like this, but there are a lot of churches where you do not have uh, faithful preaching. Is, is the Spirit really working through that? No. And so what we find here then, what we find here then is that it's a little power. For God loves to take the weak things and use them for his own glory. And they also then know in an experiential way, in a practical way, they know, therefore, their dependence upon the Lord. It is he who must do the opening. It is, it, they don't open the door themselves. It is the Lord who opens the door for them. Secondly, what's the cause? They kept my word. To keep Christ's word, of course, is to obey it. He is the only head and king of the church. And then also, they are those who have not denied my name. Now, to deny Christ's name would be, for example, to engage in pagan worship, sprinkling, giving a little incense to, to Caesar, or to deny Christ's power, or to deny his salvation. It seems that maybe there was a particular moment which is in view here, that they were tempted to do those things, to deny the name of Jesus. But in point of fact, they did not deny his name. And so because of all these things, showing the, the glory and the grace of God, they just have little power. They are those that kept his word. They did not deny his name. Therefore, we have this wonderful blessing. And then thirdly, in terms of the... Uh, in terms of the blessing, not only does Christ know their deeds, not only does he present an open door, but also he provides for them superiority. Superiority. Did you notice this here? 
The people who opposed the believers were identified as those who were of the synagogue of Satan. It's the same terminology as found back in chapter 2, verse 9, with regard to the church in Sardis, the one that was also commended. They were, the opponents were of the synagogue of Satan. These opponents were of the devil. These opponents were organized in their opposition to Christ and his church against the gospel and especially against its being spread. They were also called false Jews or pseudo-Jews. Here the Lord Jesus is, is saying that these people were not really Jews. That is to say, they were not spiritually speaking Jews. They were not true followers of Father Abraham and of Jehovah. They may have been ethnic Israel, but not true Israel. And so do we see the superiority then? These people who are opposed uh, to the believers, they're a synagogue of Satan, but the true believers here... Notice the blessings that Jesus promises. He says, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. Behold, I will make them come down, come and bow down before your feet. I'm sure you remember when we have read or sung from Psalm 72, where this, this same theme is presented in Psalm 72. Verses 8 through 11. He, that is Christ, shall have dominion also from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him, as enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him, all nations shall serve him. And you know, in Isaiah 60, verse 14, we read, Also the sons of those afflicted you shall come bowing to you, and all those who despised you shall fall prostrate at the soles of your feet, and they shall call you the city of the Lord, Zion, of the Holy One of Israel. Hallelujah. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? So, no, fundamentally, it's, it's before Jesus that all fall, right? But as we are united with him, as we are in him, as we are his elect, here, Jesus says that they, they, who have been your opponents, I will make them come and worship before your feet, not offering worship to the people, but still serving, and to know that I have loved you. Well, notice the blessings, notice not only, uh, well, let me also say in this regard, the meaning is that they will be forced to recognize that it is the church which has the truth. Many of them will, at least some of them, be converted, and they will indeed worship God. So not only will they come and bow down before your feet, but they will also know that I have loved you. You know, the Philadelphians may have boasted of their great deeds and accomplishments. That is to say, the, the ones in the city. They may have boasted of what great people, what a great city there were. The, it's the city of brotherly love. 
and look at all of our great culture and, and language and learning that we are able to spread. Look at how we've been able to bring all of this civilization, all this knowledge to others. But when all is said and done, when all is said and done, what counts is God's great love. What counts is God's great love. Indeed, Christ's great love. That great love that sent him into the world, that great love that sent him to the cross. His sovereign, predestinating love. To know that I have loved you. To know that I have loved you. And so, therefore, showing that they are the ones that are the chosen in contrast to those who will not repent, those that are the synagogue of Satan. Well, two points of application, and the first is this. Let's be a missionary church. Let's be a missionary church. Now, being a missionary church is so much more than interest in benevolence or world missions. It certainly means that. It's certainly not a church, however, where the emphasis is upon man-made methods like trusting in Egypt and its ways. Rather, the missionary church is a faithful church. It's a faithful church. It's a church which totally depends on the Lord, and therefore it is a praying congregation. As I trust, we will be a praying church, and especially a week from Wednesday as we engage in the day of prayer and fasting, I trust that we all will be able to set aside time for that, to show not as earning brownie points before God, but as showing our total reliance upon the Lord. It's, the missionary church is a church that doesn't let its smallness or lack of power deter it from winning the world. Did you ever think about that? Did you ever think about how the church grew from just a handful, as it were, of disciples? and within several hundred years had conquered the Roman Empire. Isn't that amazing? Look at so many times throughout history. We live in very desperate times, very dark days, do we not? Very dark days. And yet, my friends, we know that in the darkness, just a little light can go a long way and can dissipate, can, can dispel that darkness. We see the darkness in politics, in government, in education, in the academy, in entertainment, in the media. We see the darkness all around us in this great but wicked city of Atlanta and in the society as a whole. And yet, let us not let our smallness or our lack of power deter us from conquering the city of Atlanta. Let's be a missionary church. Number two, Amen. rely on the love of Christ. Rely on the love of Christ. You see, his love is the key. And his love is overwhelming. And his love enables us to have salvation. And his love, my friends, is of great encouragement to us, even as Jesus here says very clearly, I know your works See, I've said before you an open door, no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Amen. Will you please stand for prayer?
And our Father, we pray that this message would be applied to our hearts for the glory and honor of Christ, the one to whom all nations will flow, the one of whom all nations will sing. We long for that day, O God. And we pray, Lord, that thou wouldst be pleased to bless us. Make us, O God, a faithful church, a missionary church, a congregation that loves thee, loves Christ, is devoted to him. Make us that, O God. May we be faithful. May we know thy blessing upon us. Pardon us of our sins. Prosper us in our way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.